This is Sam Swartz and Rachel Fields with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The final race of the 2022 fall election has been decided here in Wisconsin as Democratic Secretary of State Doug LaFollette has declared victory for the position he has held since 1983. The Capital Times reports that a canvas of votes in all the counties across the state put LaFollette over his opponent, Republican candidate Amy Ludenbeck, by around 7,000 votes. Earlier today, Ludenbeck officially conceded the election. Ludenbeck had been calling for the position of Secretary of State to have more control over the running of elections. Currently, that duty is run by the state's Election Commission, which has come under heavy scrutiny by Republicans since the 2020 presidential election. Newly appointed Senate Minority Leader Melissa Agard of Madison got right to work today, announcing her Democratic picks to serve on the state's Budget Writing Committee. The 16-member Joint Finance Committee is responsible for reviewing all the state's money-related issues and wields significant power over the legislature. Though Republicans hold control of the committee, Minority Leader Agard appointed several state Democrats, including Senators LaTanya Johnson of Milwaukee and Kelda Royce of Madison. In an announcement today, Agar praised both senators, saying that the state's budget should reflect the values of every Wisconsinite. And speaking of money, the State Department of Administration announced today that the state's projected budget surplus is now over $6.5 billion. Uh, Republican leaders of the State Finance Committee held both praise and criticism of the surplus, saying that Republican responsibility has limited state spending, but Wisconsin residents are still overtaxed. Republicans then issued a notice to Governor Tony Evers, saying that the surplus is not to be used as a blank check. Evers has previously proposed tax cuts for all Wisconsinites and even a $150 tax rebate. Instead, Republicans on the Finance Committee say that the surplus should be used to give Wisconsin programs more flexibility and to provide tax cuts to benefit all Wisconsinites. A fire broke out in a dumpster behind the downtown Nitty Gritty restaurant over the weekend. WKOW reports that the fire was was reported around 1 a.m. Sunday morning and that the restaurant was immediately evacuated. On the scene, fire crews say they saw heavy smoke and flames on the backside of the building and heavy smoke inside. There were no reported injuries from the fire, though the Nitty Gritty is to be closed at least through Thanksgiving. And now, on to today's top stories. Standing amidst green signs held by supporters with the blue tones of Lake Monona in the background and the eye-popping red carpeting of the Monona Terrace, Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway took the stage to officially announce her re-election campaign yesterday. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has more. So I am happy to announce that I am running for re-election as Mayor of Madison. Incumbent Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway is finishing up her first term after defeating longtime Mayor Paul Soglin in 2019 by over 20 points. At her announcement on Sunday, on a stage filled with supporters, Rhodes-Conway outlined her priorities over the last four years, from affordable housing to improving transit to public safety and climate resilience. She framed her re-election bid as a continuation of those priorities, along with dealing with unexpected challenges. I was excited to enter the mayor's office and get to work, and we did. But out of the blue came a historic challenge. 
We were watching closely the news from overseas and in early 2020, before most people in the public fully understood the disruption that was coming, the city and our wonderful public health department pivoted to focus on protecting the public and city workers from this deadly threat. The mayor highlighted her leadership during a time of instability, protecting city workers, keeping transit running, and holding fast to public health orders. She highlighted the city taking action to help people facing housing insecurity in the peak of the pandemic, which culminated in the city building the first permanent men's homeless shelter in Wisconsin. Together, we stayed firm in the face of opposition to public health orders. And all this hard work paid off. COVID is still with us. But Madison's vaccination rates are among the best in the nation. Our employment rate is low and our economy is recovering rapidly. Another unexpected challenge, holding safe and secure elections during a time of pandemic and political instability. The mayor highlighted her standing firm to the Gableman investigation and commitment to increased access to voting. And when the 2020 election deniers came after us, filing multiple lawsuits against the city, threatening to jail me, and telling me to rip out our drop boxes. I stood up to the bullies and I won. I am not removing our ballot drop boxes. And instead, we will fight for a state Supreme Court that believes in expanding the vote, not constricting it. But some issues in running a city are much more predictable, like public safety, housing, climate resilience, and transit. Last year, the city of Madison unveiled their newest ambulance, bringing the number of city-run ambulances up to nine. That ambulance works in conjunction with the CARES program, launched by Mayor Rhodes Conway last year to bring crisis workers and paramedics to select 911 calls instead of police. In its first year of service, CARES has already responded to over 1,200 911 calls. Rhodes Conway highlighted her work with the Madison Police Department to protect Madison residents and to create a more equitable police force. She pointed to funding in her 2023 budget that will create a position for a new police reform and innovation director, responsible for using data-informed methods to create new strategies for violence prevention. One of the mayor's biggest public safety priorities since taking office has been traffic safety. Mayor Satya pointed to her Vision Zero initiative, a plan to completely eliminate traffic fatalities in Madison by 2035. The data is in and we are making an impact. In the first three quarters of 2022, serious injury crashes are down 19 percent from 2021. But we are not stopping there. We have a good shot at a $23 million federal grant to help us install safety infrastructure improvements in neighborhoods across the city. And that grant is matched in my budget. Another key issue for Rhodes Conway is one of the largest issues facing the city of Madison, housing. In her Housing Forward plan released last year, the mayor is aiming to build 10,000 new housing units every five years to address the estimated 70,000 people who could move into the Madison area by 2040. As part of the Housing Forward plan, the mayor says that she's helped to cut red tape on accessible dwelling units, or cottage houses. These, along with other housing options, are one way Rhodes Conway says she's working to create more affordable housing throughout the city. In four years, we have more than doubled the affordable housing budget, and we have more rental units in the pipeline than ever before. 
Direct city financial support has contributed to 21% of all new rental units in our economy. To help those experiencing housing insecurities at the peak of the pandemic, the mayor pointed to her new housing and economic initiatives. She increased funding for eviction defense by almost $2 million, is launching an assistance program to help low-income families with their utility bills, and earlier this year launched the state's first guaranteed income pilot program. Rhodes-Conway also pointed to the permanent men's homeless shelter, which after years of hurdles during the pandemic, is set to kick off construction with the help of county and federal funds in 2024. But for folks who would be living at the shelter, which is on the east side, they need reliable transportation to get to jobs and services downtown. One of the biggest projects in the city of Madison today is the Bus Rapid Transit Program, a massive overhaul of the city's bus system. Rhodes-Conway says that creating a Madison that is easily accessible is one of her biggest priorities. We have to continue to invest in transit and make it easy and quick for everyone to get where they need to go. And Rhodes-Conway pointed to her blending of transit and green energy, pointing to the purchase of dozens of new electric buses with federal funds, as well as the nation's first electric fire truck. The roads are not the only place Rhodes-Conway says that she sees green. She also pointed to solar energy initiatives under the Mattis Sun program. Solar energy now provides one megawatt of electricity to all city buildings and three megawatts of electricity throughout the community. Looking toward an initiative she hopes to see in her next term, Satya pointed to the recent federal funding to fund a brand new air quality monitoring system throughout Madison, which will monitor air pollution across the city in collaboration with the Mung Institute, the Latino Health Council, and the Foundation for Black Women's Wellness. Rhodes-Conway says that she even wants housing to be green. We're working to make the new Triangle development the greenest public housing in the country. And we're working in naturally occurring affordable housing to improve energy and water efficiency while protecting tenants. One of the hallmarks of her term as mayor has been Satya Rhodes-Conway's ability to secure federal funding for a cavalcade of projects, from bus rapid transit to the new air quality monitoring system to traffic safety improvements. But in asking for a second term, Rhodes-Conway says there's still plenty to get done. She says issues like affordable housing, greener and safer streets, and improving transit will continue to be key issues. Joining Rhodes-Conway at her announcement yesterday amidst supporters and some city alders were Dane County Executive Joe Parisi, Congressman Mark Pocan, and newly appointed District 17 alder Sabrina Madison, all of whom endorsed the incumbent mayor. Mayor Rhodes-Conway will face at least one challenger this spring, Gloria Reyes, who announced her candidacy earlier this month. In both announcement speeches, neither Rhodes-Conway nor Reyes mentioned each other by name. The spring election to decide Madison's mayor, as well as other local officials and a slew of state judicial seats, including a closely watched race for the state Supreme Court, will take place on April 4, 2023. The deadline for candidates to declare their candidacy for Madison mayor is January 3rd, and if more than two candidates enter the race, it would head to a primary election on February 21st. Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway's entire announcement speech is available at WORTFM.org. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. WORT News Director Shali Pittman contributed audio to this story. Who provides medical assistance for the people who are in jail? That is the question the Dane County Board of Supervisors had to answer last week as a contract with a health care provider was coming to an end. WORT reporter Antonio Barreras Lozano has more. 
At a meeting last Thursday, the Dane County Board of Supervisors approved a contract to provide health care services to Dane County Jail residents. This contract will be the third time Dane County works with Walpath, one of the largest for-profit health care providers for prisoners in the country. Here is Dane County Board Supervisor Rochelle Andre, who was one of two sponsors for the proposed contract. So this is a five-year contract that will provide medical services for residents of the Dane County Jail. WellPath is currently our provider for those services, so this essentially provides that contractor with uh, a five-year contract moving forward beginning in January for those services. The new contract promises to provide jail residents with necessary medical services like off-site emergency care and mental health support. The contract will cost a little more than $38 million over a five-year term. The contract was ultimately approved with 28 voting to approve it and 8 voting not to, with one supervisor excused. Some supervisors who voted against approving the contract, like Supervisor Tim Kiefer, argue that contracts like these should not be given to a for-profit company like WellPath. Kiefer points to the fact that the previous CEO of WellPath was convicted of attempting to bribe a sheriff in Virginia to sign a contract with the company. So this is not the kind of corporation that Dane County should be doing business with, and I think we should have looked for a different vendor. And I think long-term, the county should be looking at a nonprofit model for providing health care in the jail, not contracting out to a for-profit corporation. Wellpath and other for-profit healthcare companies have also been accused of delaying healthcare services to jail residents. In 2001, jail resident Jimmy Joshua had to wait 16 hours before receiving medical treatment after his hip was broken in an altercation with Dane County Jail deputies. While waiting to receive care, Joshua was stripped and restrained in an isolation cell. He was eventually taken to the hospital, where he stayed for eight days after needing surgery to place a plate and eight screws in his hip. In a recent Dane County Board meeting, Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett addressed concerns about WellPath's ability to provide effective care to jail residents. Um, again, it was taken into consideration, but there were no outstanding incidents or or uh, frequencies that uh, we assessed uh, that would play a significant role in their ability to care for the residents of our facility. Supervisor Andre says that many of the concerns regarding WellPath's ability to care for jail residents comes down to staffing levels. But she says that these concerns were addressed in the new contract. So there are kind of additional provisions in the contract that they would have to, um, you know, basically not be paid or or provide penalties if they don't meet those staffing levels, which are um, new to this contract. Andre also added that although the county is working with a for-profit company, she hopes to work with more local organizations to provide health care to jail residents in the future. I'm hoping we could at least have that proactive conversation over the next few years with um, you know, local health systems and hospitals to see if there's anything that we could do to entice a, a partnership um, with them. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Antonio Barreras Lozano. Earlier this year, residents in southeastern Wisconsin had an influx in unexpected visitors, ones that are not usually known to inhabit the area, black bears. Now, the state DNR is reporting that in 2022, 
Cougars have been seen across southwestern Wisconsin in numbers much higher than they've been seen in the past. Are these larger predator are these large predators making their way south to places they inhabited before the area was colonized at the turn of the 20th century, or is this all about perception? WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke, spoke with Sarah Fisher with the State Department of Natural Resources to learn why these carnivores are being seen more and more in southern Wisconsin. So, Sarah, just to just to sort of start things off, large carnivores like bears and cougars, like I said before, they're not super common here in southern Wisconsin, but they they do have a presence in uh, the state as a whole. So uh, where where are these animals usually found here in Wisconsin? And, And do you have any population estimates about how many how many there are across the state? Yeah, so bears are usually found in the pretty much the northern half of the state currently. Um, our current population estimate is around 23,000 bears. Um, for cougars, we do not have a residential population. So that just means the ones that we are seeing here are from coming in from other states. Um, sometimes they come down from the UP. There's a few that are residential up there. And then there's um, some that wander in from Minnesota and Canada. Um, so we don't have a population number because those animals usually don't stay in the state. And they're usually found in the northern northern sections, too. It's like we have been seeing them come down, uh, but it's usually they're moving through pretty fast trying to see if this is an area that's good for them. They usually hit the, the high populated areas and then hightail it out of there pretty fast. <laughs> And, and and so, like I said, they, there's been more sightings over the last few years in southern Wisconsin of both bears and cougars, uh, though maybe not specifically right here in Dane County. So uh, ju- just to sort of start things off, uh, from from what you've seen, is, is this true or is this more of just a perception thing? And then sort of going from there, if, if it is true, uh, what, what is it about southern Wisconsin that is uh, making more cougars and bears uh, come down here, making the environment a little bit more friendly for them? I will start with bears. Uh, So our population has been expanding southward for the last couple years, um, and we have seen that in our our harvests as well. A lot of the counties, the southern counties that bears are being harvested from, they are younger males, which is typical from what we would see in an an expanding population. Um, The males are usually the ones that will travel farther to find new new um, territory, to find different mates. The females usually won't travel that far, especially if they have cubs. Um, so seeing those animals being harvested in the southern parts of their range makes sense and corroborates with our, our population expanding south. For cougars, um, one of the main things that we've been noticing with the number of sightings that we've had and where they are being found is the number of trail cameras that are out on the landscape. Uh, Cougars are native to Wisconsin, although they were extirpated in the early 1900s. So they were found all throughout the state. With them, um, when they do come visit Wisconsin now, they wander through to find habitat females. They usually don't find it because, again, it's the males that are coming through. So they're just kind of cruising around trying to see if there's anything that is there for them. Um, And then with the amount of trail cameras that folks have out on their landscape now, we are catching a lot more of them. Um, And it's not necessarily that we're catching more 
individual animals. It's usually the same one or two animals being caught more than one time across the landscape. And now you mentioned the the reason that they were uh, uh, sort of hunted out in the first place is because people were worried about their pets, uh, their livestock, uh, things like that. And now uh, with these animals being seen more here in southern Wisconsin, this this may be another thing that you know people are worried about here again. So uh, just just I guess two part question: one, what sh- what would you tell people who are are uh, concerned about these large predators, large carnivores, uh, begin you know beginning to be seen more in southern Wisconsin? And then from there, I, I just if you could give a couple tips for people who live maybe in the more rural areas that might be concerned uh, for these animals, like uh, what to keep an eye out for and uh, maybe what to do about uh, livestock and pets that spend their time outside. Yeah, so if you would come up on either a bear or a cougar, if you're in the woods, um, the best thing to do is to stand your ground, especially with bears. You do not want to turn around and run. Um, You want to make yourself look big and you can calmly talk loudly at them um, so that they are aware of your presence. They are, they recognize you're a human. Um, Most of these animals, they don't want anything to do with humans. They want to get as far away from humans as possible. Um, For cougars, we have never had a reported cougar attack on a human in the state or a um, confirmed livestock depredation from a cougar either. Uh, So being, um, Attacked by a cougar when you're out in the woods would be exceedingly rare. Um, bears, we've had about um, a handful or so over the last decade of human attacks from black bears. It is rare, but it can happen. Most of the time, it's a uh, sow with cubs that um, is defending them when it happens. Um, if you do come up on a out with cubs, the best thing to do is to slowly back away um, and give her as much space as possible. Um, You don't want to corner her, make sure that they have space to get away, basically, um, and make sure that she knows you're not trying to hurt her by just being calm and continuing to move away. Another thing that can be done to avoid conflict altogether, especially with bears coming into residential areas in yards is to remove the attractants that bring them there in the first place. So feeding birds, that bird seed, they will come right in, and it's a smorgasbord for them, (laughs) free food. Um, So removing that bird seed and not feeding outside animals like cats or putting bread or old fruit out for raccoons or possums or, you know, whatever could be out there that could be eating them. Um, Removing all of that and putting your garbage cans in a a closed area like a garage or a shed until garbage day, um, those will definitely limit the um, interactions you have with both large animals. Well, Sarah, we're, we're sort of coming up against the clock here. Do you have just any, any final thoughts of anything on this topic that you'd like to share with us? Yes. Um, if you guys see anything out in the field, um, bears, especially in the southern part of the state, or cougars, wolves even as well, Um, We have a large mammal report form that we would like those observations. It can be found on our website as well. Just fill everything out. You can attach photos and videos as well. I've been talking with Sarah Fisher, wildlife biologist and large carnivore specialist with the state DNR about the rise of cougar and bear sightings here in southern Wisconsin. So, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me.
The time is now 6.34, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Sam Swartz. Thanks for joining us. It is Monday, which usually means that Forward Lookout host Brenda Conkle sits down with Dylan Brogan to break down all the meetings to come in Madison and Dane County. This week, though, Dylan is out, so news director Shally Pittman stepped in for the abbreviated week ahead in local government. Well, it's Monday, and that means it's time for Forward Lookout. With me is Brenda Conkle of ForwardLookout.com. Brenda, how you doing? Doing good. Thanks for doing this with me, Shally. Absolutely. The week ahead is, of course, uh, shortened because of the holiday. So we have fewer meetings to get to than usual, which means that we can really take our time with each of these meetings. Starting off with the week ahead in the county, today, uh, right now, actually, there's a meeting uh, with the Board of Health Madison in Dane County over some kind of death row animal situation, um, over a dangerous animal determination for Layla. Um, I was clicking through this, and uh, Piers Layla, the pit bull, uh, attacked a chihuahua. And it died. Oh, poor Chihuahua. Um, so, yeah, these are sad every time I see them. They only happen maybe once or twice a year, sometimes not at all, which is really great. But every once in a while, there's a situation with an animal that has done something that is animal-like. Um, and so they are going to be having an appeal. They have an administrative hearing. Um, this is one of the functions of the Board of Public Health um, for Madison and Dane County. And so that determination will be happening on Monday at right now actually so okay and moving on to tomorrow at 5 30 the public protection and judiciary committee or as i like to call it the pb and j sounds like a sandwich um they have a bunch of stuff uh ranging from small changes to staff attorneys to accepting money for bomb technicians Yep, they only have four items on their agenda. Um, they'll also be looking at the DaneCon radio system maintenance contract, which um, was a big deal a few years ago when they paid a lot of money to get this new radio system. So they got the maintenance contract for that. And then they are also going to be looking at rural marksmanship equipment. Um, so I'm not sure what that exactly is going to be used for. Always interesting to pay attention to the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee to see what kind of toys the uh, Sheriff's Department is getting. So also at 530 tomorrow on the county level, the Public Works and Transportation Committee will be having a hybrid meeting. Yep, they also have about four items on their agenda of interest. Um, they're authorizing the Job Center and South Madison Office Space Sharing Lease Agreement for Forward Services Corporation. They do a bunch of employment type related work, I believe. Um, they'll also be looking at another um, lease for joining forces for families out at Allied Drive. Um, then they are also going to be having uh, an agreement for um, environmental monitoring systems with the Department of Waste and Renewables. That's a new department um, at the county. And then they are looking at another lease, <laughs> lots of leases, um, out at uh, Cottage Grove Road for joining forces for family as well. Jumping to Wednesday on the Dane County level, the Park Commission will be uh, having a virtual Zoom meeting. Um, everything for the Pheasant Branch Conservancy Restoration, which I believe they called a workhorse wetland gem due to its many connections <laughs> with surface and groundwater. 
Yes, they have several items related to that. They're also going to be looking at the 2023 crop leases that they have. Uh, the county owns some land and they rent it to farmers to uh, have crop leases. And then they have a couple easements and a grant. <laughs> I don't know what that's for. <laughs> Turning around to the city this week, already ongoing, perhaps even over, is uh, the Community Development Authority to uh, give an update on the Triangle Redevelopment Project. This is right in the historic uh, Greenbush neighborhood, correct? Yes, and, and this is the only item on their agenda, so it's probably a pretty big update. Um, it's a big project that they have planned there, and I have not been tuned in to this for the last couple of years, so I'm, it would be interesting to see the information that they provided there. Hopefully better than the first time the Triangle yeah. Redevelopment Project <laughs> no doubt. happened. Um, <laughs> Hopefully we learned a few things. <laughs> that's a Madison deep cut. Okay, 5.30, yeah. uh, the Plan Commission is meeting, and they have a lot of stuff on their agenda. They have a new ordinance that they're looking at for their Transportation Demand Management Program. Transportation Demand Management Program is, is usually to give alternatives for transportation for employment places. Um, can be used in other, other places as well, but, you know, a lot of things like the the bus pass programs for the hospitals and things like that fall into the transportation demand. And then at 6 p.m. tonight uh, on the city level meeting right now is the Community Services Committee virtual meeting. And uh, this is interesting. Uh, discuss and finalize funding recommendations for youth, young adult and adult employment RFP. And they have some letters of support. Everything from the Madison Area Sheet Metal Training Center to the Omega School to the Urban League of Greater Madison. We've got all sorts of folks recommending this uh, for over the next couple of years, right? Yep. Um, every about every five years, sometimes four years, sometimes three years, depends. Uh, they do a, a different area of funding for um, various programming. Um, and so they are doing their youth and young adult um, programming now. Um, and the people who are the agencies that get this funding probably will get a, maybe a five-year contract. Um, and so they're looking at who, what types of services are going to be available in the community for the next few years. Very cool. All right. Also at six o'clock, the Lake Monona Waterfront Ad Hoc Committee is meeting. And to find out what they're talking about, well, they list check-in presentations, draft master plan, scoring criteria, and the 2023 work plan. But there are no attached documents as of right now when they're <laughs> meeting. So you'd have to show up. Yeah, that happens a lot. Um, but um, And it's the only item on their agenda that they packed it all into one item. So um, definitely, if you're interested in this uh, project, you probably want to show up and hear what they have to talk about. And that's in person. And the, I was going to say it's in person, so you actually have to show up. Um, and it's out at the Goodman Maintenance Facility. Is that in the Goodman Community Center? No, the Goodman Maintenance Facility is out by the the swimming pool. Oh, so many, so yep. many Goodmans. Okay. Yep. Uh, <laughs> tomorrow, Tuesday, 4.30, the Water Utility Board has some reports and um, they're not going to talk about the increase in rates though, right? Um, it, it could be under the financial conditions monthly report. They may discuss it, um, but you never know. Um, they, it was, they had a very brief agenda. It was just reports, but they have the water production report, financial conditions report, capital projects report, uh, capital projects are usually like big projects that they have. And then operations monthly report. Okay. And then at 4.30, virtually the Habitat Stewardship Subcommittee of the Parks Division is meeting for all sorts of like flood mitigation projects, forestry permits, five-year plans, all sorts of stuff. Yep. So they have um, some tree removal that's going to be going on in the 
Mendota Grassman Greenway Flood Mitigation and Restoration Project, as well as the Lower Badger Mill Creek Pond Flood Mitigation Project. So some tree removal going on there. And then they're killing all the trees today. That is a hot topic, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> exactly. Always. They have the Madison Gas and Electric, uh, you know, when they, they sort of chop the trees into V's downtown to allow the electric lines to go through. Well, they have, get an annual permit for that. And so they're going to be, if that, if you're in, worried that that may impact you, you might want to pay attention to that. Then they do have a five-year plan for um, parks land management. Um, and so they'll be discussing that as well as if, are they going to stay in person, are they going to go to in-person or stay online? And then they do have a presentation from Olbeck Gardens about the scout program there. Okay, and then tomorrow, 6.30 on the city level. That's the big deal. The Common Council is meeting. Uh, they're having hybrid meetings now, right? They are. And this was interesting because it was a very short agenda. I think there's like 41 items. Uh, sometimes there's 100 and some items So uh, in, before they even get to the introduction. So uh, this was a relatively short meeting. Um, they have a couple of projects they'll be looking at. 219 North Fair Oaks, 517 Grand Canyon Drive, and 6617 Odana Road, as well as 2405 Cypress Way. There's also Hughes Place and West Badger Road there. Um, they also will then be getting an update from Destination Madison. Um, and then they have the police chief's third quarter report um, that they'll be looking at. That's the um, part of what came out of a lot of the Common Council work around policing. Um, and so this is their, their chance to hear that quarterly report. And then there's a few other things that might be of interest. Uh, Garver uh, Events is going to be um, getting the exclusive right to have alcohol beverage services at Ulbrick Gardens. Um, there's a cross-country ski permit program that they're going to be approving. Um, they do have the increasing the all their salaries on there. It will take 15 votes. Um, and then they have, um, they're going to accept a property transfer for the property underlying the Hilton parking ramp. Um, so I'm guessing there's not a lot of parties involved in that. Um, and then they're going to look at expanding some um, protections for tenants against retaliation, particularly when they um, file complaints about with the building inspector. And then the last, uh, also not controversial at all, haha, is the Police Civilian Oversight Board appointments. So uh, Wednesday on the city level, uh, at, starting at 8 a.m., we're going to talk about sewerage. Uh, the <laughs> Madison Metro Sewerage District Commission is meeting virtually, and they just have a bunch of reports. Yes, they do. We usually skip this one, but um, and almost everything was on their consent agenda. Um, but yeah, they, they do have quite a few reports that they'll be hearing, and they will also be looking at the 2023 employee handbook. I'm sorry. This is why Dylan should do it, because he knows what to cut and skip, and I don't know. Um, okay. Actually, we usually cut this one because nobody knows what the Madison Metropolitan Sewage District is, and I don't think anybody actually goes to the meetings except when PFAS is on the agenda. 4.30 on Wednesday on the city level, the Board of Public Works is meeting. Uh, what are they talking about, Brenda? So they have um, a few projects. I just pulled out the ones that were not on the consent agenda because those are the ones that will usually be more controversial. But um, they have approving plans and specs, which means, um, you know, how are the roads going to look and where the sewer is going to go and that type of stuff for Birchwood Point South, um, as well as Acacia Ridge. Um, so those are two development projects that, that are coming before them. They're also looking at some resurfacing assessment districts. So that would be for Halo Lane and Twilight Trail. 
you can tell they're running out of names from the streets in the city of Madison. Um, they also have um, some improvements they're going to be making on Hudson Avenue, Miller Avenue, Willard Avenue, Center Avenue, and Summers Avenue. So if you live there, expect some additional assessments coming from the city of Madison. You might want to get involved and find out what that's all about, uh, how much it's going to cost you. Um, and then there's some remodeling that's going to be done in the city county building on the first and the fifth floor. And then they had a whole bunch of change orders as well as um, a contract for Hawks Landing North flood mitigation. How about a forward lookout avenue? If we're running out of ideas, right? may I propose? <laughs> that would be very cool. Or a Wart Avenue. You don't have a Wart Avenue. Wart either. Avenue. I'm telling you, that'd be <laughs> awesome. But then we'd have to move there and we've looked at it. That's a lot of, that's a lot. Uh, yeah. No. <laughs> a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, okay. And then finally, 530 on Wednesday, way to cap it off with the Alcohol License Review Committee or ALRC. What, uh, what do we have here? So um, they have a whole bunch of their routine stuff. Um, there are a couple change of license conditions. So if you're a neighbor and you wanted uh, certain conditions on various licenses, you always got to watch and see if they change them later. Um, so some of the places that will be changing it, there's a uh, Garber um, is going to be allowing one alcohol service until 1 a.m. on Saturday evenings. They're also um, at um, Cafe Coda. They're looking at remodeling a garage area for classes and workshops in the backyard area. And then at 646 Washington Avenue, they are looking to, um, that's the railroad cars that are down there. Um, and they're going to have a private outdoor train platform area where they want to have um, alcohol there as well. Um, and then there's one last uh, change of license premises, which is on 57 South Stoughton Road, which is the Sundown Saloon. And they're um, looking for a patio for in the summertime. And then there's a whole bunch of new licenses. Um, it's always funny to try to figure out how to explain this. So I'm going to give the addresses for the new new licenses because we often don't know what the actual names are going to be. We usually have some legal names. So 704 and a quarter East Johnson Street, 1145 North Sherman Avenue, 2343 Zaire Road, 101 North Hamilton Street, 3330 Atwood Avenue, 6404 Menorah Drive, 3519 University Avenue and 521 North Sherman Avenue. And then they will be also discussing if they're going to stay in, uh, if they're going to be in person or if they're going to stay virtual. No hybrid option? Um, you know, I guess not. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> you would think that that would be one of the major committees that would have that option. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, that is the three days ahead. And remember, of course, Thursday and Friday, no meetings because it's the holidays already. Brenda Conkle has been with us from ForwardLookout.com, previewing the week ahead. Brenda, thank you so much. No problem. Have a good week. It's now 6.48 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. November 23rd, coming up this Wednesday, is the anniversary of the murder by the Mexican army of the great revolutionary Margarita Ortega in 1913. Ortega was one of the many women who took up arms and leadership of the Mexican Revolution of 1910, who inspired revolutionaries and radical movements in the United States and around the world. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story on this edition of The Past Isn't Past. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, 
Standing up and standing This strong. Thursday, November 24th, is the anniversary of the murder of the great Mexican revolutionary Margarita Ortega by the military in 1913. Ortega was a weapons expert, crack shot, nurse, courier, and spy. She was the best-known Magonist woman soldier. The Magonists were anarcho-communists. Their ideas were based on Ricardo Flores Margon and his collaborators on the Mexican newspaper Regeneración, the official publication of the Mexican Liberal Party, known by its Spanish initials, PLM. The Magones were influenced by Peter Kropotkin, Emma Goldman, Marx, Gorky, and Ibsen. They were also affected by the Mexican liberal traditions and the self-government concepts of the indigenous people. Ortega's families were, in her words, made up of people who were not politically conscious, but were proletarians aspiring to be bourgeoisie. But Ortega, from a young age, identified with the poor and working class. She came to support the revolution and joined the PLM. In 1910, several organizations took up arms against the repressive General Diaz regime, like the supporters of Zapata and Villa. The PLM fought attracting workers and peasants in northern Mexico and Baja, California, where Ortega lived. The Zapatistas spread across the south. In 1911, Ortega became one of the liaisons between the Maganese fighters. Margarita was an excellent horsewoman and expert marksman, as Regeneration, the paper of the PLM, noted. More than one time, her daring and cold blood saved her from falling into the forces of tyranny. Margarita Ortega had a big heart. On her horse or from a boulder, she could keep the government soldiers at bay, and a little later, she could be seen caring for the wounded, feeding the convalescing, or offering words of comfort to the widows and orphans. In 1911, she told her partner, I love you, but I also love those who suffer, and for them I fight and risk my life. I don't want to see more men and women giving their effort, their health, their intelligence to make the bourgeoisie rich. I don't want there to be men who order other men around anymore. I am determined to continue to fight for the cause of the Partido Liberal Mexicano. If you are a man, come with me to the country, otherwise you can forget me, because I am not going to be a companion of a coward. He refused to go with her, but her daughter, Rosara, replied, Let us saddle our horses and throw ourselves into the struggle for the redemption of the working class. Because of their activities, Margarita and her daughter were expelled from the border town of Mexicali, marched out into the desert, and ordered to never return. For several days, they struggled under the burning sun. At one point, Margarita thought her daughter had died and was about to kill herself when she saw signs of life. Somehow, they made it to Yuma, Arizona, where they were arrested by border guards. Yuma, Magonists, managed their escape and got them to Phoenix. Tragically, Rosara never recovered. She died wishing she could return home to the struggle. Margarita found the strength to carry on and returned to Mexico. With her comrade and lover, Natividad Cortez, she began to organize across the northern state of Sonora, but they were surrounded by government forces in October 1913, and he was killed by gunfire. Margarita was imprisoned in Mexicali. She refused to name any PLM members, so they tortured her. Cowards, she shouted, tear my skin to pieces, break my bones, drink all of my blood, and I will never denounce one of my friends. She was forced to stand in the cage. Any time she leaned against the bars, she was shoved back into the middle of the cage. If she fell, she was beaten and forced to stand again. After four days of suffering, she was taken out and shot at night. As Regeneration reported, a shot left this noble woman without life, free of her existence, an example 
to remind the dispossessed to redouble our efforts against exploitation and tyranny. She lived to see Diaz overthrown, only to see a revolutionary leader betray her people, Francisco Madero, who was assassinated in 1913. The revolution continued in various forms until 1920. One of its great achievements was the Mexican Constitution of 1917, which instituted land reform, expropriated and nationalized foreign industries, most importantly oil. Tragically, the PRI took power in 1929 until 2000, and again from 2012 until 2018, running autocratic oppressive states. In 2018, reformist President Andres Manuel López Obrador of the National Regeneration Movement took power. To learn more about the Mexican Revolution, check out the archive interview by Alan Ruff on last Thursday's A Public Affair with activist professor, author Christina Heatherton about her book, Arise, Global Radicalism in the Era of the Mexican Revolution. For the past and past, I'm Harry Richardson. On today's Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new documentaries on the small screen. In Is That Black Enough for You, veteran film critic Elvis Mitchell takes us back to 1968 to 1978, a key period of African Americans in the movies. The other doc is a fun David vs. Goliath story with the great title, Pepsi, Where's My Jet? This is the story about a group of artists that changed the culture forever. These movies were about us. That's a nice change. <laughs> that was clip from the trailer for Is That Black Enough For You? How One Decade Changed the Movies and Me. Written, directed, and narrated by veteran film critic Elvis Mitchell. This is an exceptional documentary that made me want to see most of these movies. This is also a highly personal movie. Most of the films concentrates on films from 1968 to 1978. Mitchell also makes important comments on the history of African Americans' use and abuse in films and by the movie industry. I would love to see a book based on this story, but sadly Mitchell says that proposal was rejected. Mitchell says the Hollywood film culture was unique. It was created by persecuted immigrants who created an America that they wanted to come to, and that America is still being seen. It's something popular culture is still responding to. Unfortunately, that includes the negative stereotypes and outright racism of some of these earlier films. He highlights some of the more famous and obvious, like Birth of a Nation, 1915, and Gone with the Wind, 1939. But he also mentioned scenes from Hitchcock's Young and Restless that used blackface, as did Orson Welles and Laurence Olivier to play Othello. He makes us see Mickey Mouse in a new light by comparisons to old minstrel shows. But most of the film is a celebration of an all too brief period where African Americans did great work in front of and behind the camera. There are great directors like Melvin Van Peebles, who was also an actor, writer, and composer, who made mostly independent films from 1957 into the 2000s, and fellow director Gordon Parks. There was also Suzanne DePass, who became an executive producer and businesswoman. She's the first and so far only black woman to be nominated for an Oscar for a screenplay for Lady Sinks the Blues. 1972. This was a breakthrough movie in a number of ways, but especially in its treatment of its leads, Diana Ross and Billy Dee Williams. That, of course, leads to a whole host of great actors. Among the most enjoyable bits come from Billy Dee Williams and Harry Belafonte. Belafonte, better known as a great singer, only did 
a handful of movies before he became disgusted with the roles he was offered and gave his full energy to singing. There are many great stories in this movie, more than I have time to cover. Just check it out on Netflix. Up next, a documentary about an amazing journey of friendship, mountain climbing, and living your dreams. Now, the more Pepsi you drink, the more great stuff you're going to get. Play that again? No fine print came up. I don't care what anybody else says. That is a legit offer. That was Glib from the trailer for Pepsi, Where's My Jet? Directed by Andrew Renzi. This is a highly entertaining documentary with several sympathetic characters to root for and one bad corporation, Pepsi, to boo. The movie takes us back to 1995 with a great David versus Goliath story. We meet an ambitious young man, John Leonard, who has four jobs. He's working his way through school and views money as freedom. One day he sees an amazing ad for Pepsi where they offer stuff in exchange for Pepsi labels. But Leonard doesn't want a leather jacket. No, he wants the grand prize, a Harrier 2 jump jet, as seen in the commercial flown to school by the cool kid who nonchalantly says it beats taking the bus. He has a series of ideas of how to get enough labels and develop a business plan, encouraged by his wealthy friend, Todd Hoffman. Eventually, he finds a loophole. The jet is offered for 7 million points, but points can be bought, according to Pepsi's rules, for 10 cents each. So the jet would cost only $700,000. So Leonard says he can make money at air shows, offering rides. How he would do that is unclear. It only has one seat, and so on. He also manages to reach the defense secretary, whom he tells he's doing a class project to ask if he could buy the Harrier. The secretary says, well, yes, but first we would have to disarm it. So Leonard gets Hoffman to write the check. At first, Pepsi tries to dismiss him, saying, nice try, but this is obviously a joke. Here's coupons for a couple of 12-packs, but Leonard doesn't give up. He gets a lawyer and asks for his jet. He fulfilled his end of the deal. Pepsi refuses, but makes him an offer. What happens next is really interesting. A fun four-part series well worth checking out. It just started playing on Netflix. Altogether, it runs about two and a half hours. For WIT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter this evening was Antonio Barreras Lozano. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson and Brenda Conkle and to Nicholas Leet for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered this show tonight. Nate Weggehout produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.